Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of One Voice. Joining me and Brad today is Michelle Tivy, the Payments and Optimization Technology co-founder CEO of Payometry, a longtime friend of mine that was introduced to me by our dear friend Greg Schomburg. Speaking of which, one day, Greg, we will need to get you on air. So, thank you, Michelle, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, let's go ahead and get started because.、Um, For those of us who are not familiar with what you do in the payments space,、um, and we know you've been here for quite a while now, can you tell us a little bit about you and Payometry, and more interestingly, how did the name came about? So, thanks for asking. So,、um, Payometry, the name Payometry is、um, a, a new rebrand、um, for us. We had two companies: a consulting company called CNP Solutions, and A technology company, FinTech Payments Corp, and it was strongly,、um, strongly encouraged. We were strongly encouraged to get another name, and、um, so we work from home. My husband and I. My husband is my partner. We work from home, and we joke often that you know our closest employees are our kids, who happen to be eleven and thirteen, because we are always working. Right, driving to karate, we're working. Eating dinner, we're working. Washing clothes, we're working.、It's, they're constantly hearing us talk about clients and business, and so my son was hearing us struggle with this idea of a name, and we were discussing how we wanted to convey the science behind what we do,、um, and you know how involved and intricate our algorithms are. And、um, my son chimed in, and he was like, "Mom, you know, sort of like what you do sort of reminds me of geometry." And I was like, I guess so, you know, Scotty. I guess that makes sense. And he was like, Well, you should call it payometry. And I was like, Oh my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> and that's it. And so we co-branded those companies under this one name. And I cannot tell you how many compliments I get on that name. So, so when you you started the company,、um, tell us a little bit more about what you do. Because when I look here, you know the technology piece of this, it looks like you're helping、um, optimize sort of the the payment flow for retail companies and others. So, what are your primary drivers of your business? What have you been doing? So, start back in 2011, we started the company.、Uh, my husband, his career began in the payments processing space. He was actually. One of the first,、um, he was on the patent for something called the continuous service model, and that was the patent for the idea of billing a credit card continuously for goods or services until someone told you to stop. So prior to that patent, which was 2000,、um, I don't know if anyone in this conversation is old enough to remember, but I am. If you signed up for a subscription. You it had to be for a fixed time if you were going to put it on a credit card. So if you were getting a gym membership, it was for 24 months under contract. The continuous service model was the dawn of the subscription payment billed monthly. And in addition to the idea of billing, that Scott was responsible for helping to design and build the payments processing systems for those cards. And the important thing about that was we, we he needed those cards to approve, right? He needed those cards to go through. Eventually, that system was sold along with the company to Time Inc. for eight hundred and thirty-four million dollars. Back when that was a lot of money, 
and Scott became a consultant. So in 2011, he started this company. And what our consulting company did was work with large brands and even small businesses to help them um, with the knowledge that he had about how to keep their payments moving. Um, and so any company who took card not present payments, which, you know, nine years ago was mostly e-commerce and subscription, Scott was able to take the, the knowledge base that he had from building those systems. Um, and he has a very unique data set that he uses um, and he developed unique algorithms as well. And so over the years, um, we he developed a an assessment tool that he uses to assist a client that goes very deep into the client's operational business and transactional information and extracts the points that will assist that client's sort of payments strategy. And our clients, people probably don't know because we, you know, a lot of our clients we work with are under NDA. Um, and so until we're done working with them. <laughs> and so a lot of people don't know that, you know, we've worked with um, Fox and Guthy Ranker and Proactive, the acne medicine and um, Time Inc., of course, it called him back. And, um, you know, nationwide insurance, large companies who have their own payments systems in-house, but they don't have experts there to keep those payment systems um, operational. So what optimization means in this sense is to be able to get as many payments to complete as possible while also spending the least amount of unnecessary fees as possible. And so um, that's different for every company um, because we believe and our data show that each company has very unique needs and those are not typically considered when their payments are processed. So I can give you an example. Um, Netflix and Blue Apron, both subscriptions, right? And so you might think, well, how difficult is processing a payment? That's where the science, uh, you know, comes in that we talk about. Well, it's actually a very different paradigm because the only thing that's really the same about it is that the card is getting billed every 30 days. But other than that, you know, Netflix is a digital subscription and Blue Apron is a physical, hard, good, fungible deliverable. Um, Netflix has an extremely high cost of customer acquisition, um, Blue Apron, different cost of customer acquisition. Blue Apron, a very high fulfillment cost because they're paying for all that shipping. Netflix, low fulfillment cost because it's just a light on a server. And so all of these pieces of information can be used with our algorithms to keep, those, keep their payments moving continuously. I, you know, I, I feel badly because I actually had no idea 
a large part of what you just told me about what you guys do. It's it's not something that you typically read about um, in in, um, in in public forum, or I would say I think you guys and what you do compared to a lot of the other fintech companies, even the ones that run the rails and more from an infrastructure perspective, you are much more low profile, but yet you are doing a lot of the critical uplifting um, compared to some of the other ones. Well, the low profile over the last few years has been sort of intentional because we are, you know, we do have a piece of technology that we're building um, it based, it's based on the assessment that I told you about. Um, it's proprietary patents are pending, but, um, you know, there's, as you know, in tech, there's a lot of competition. And so every day that you're not in the market is a day that you're, you know, that you're in danger of being ripped off. And so the low profile is a little bit intentional. Our clients come to us. They come to us. We, uh, we are a... CEO to CEO referred company um, because our, 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 our results are pretty impressive. I think, um, you know, since 2011, we've delivered um, just over three uh, and a quarter billion dollars of profitability for our clients. So we've been able to deliver over $3 billion to their bottom line doing what we do. And that's the kind those those are the kind of numbers that people talk about. So, you know, we'll go to Money Twenty Twenty and see a client and that client will say to another CEO, Hey, you got you guys have to meet Scott and Michelle and they'll be they'll be like, Oh, we already work with them. <laughs> that that's amazing though. Like, you know, being in a position that you don't have to go out and actively seek clients because the results speak for you and you get referrals. I mean, that is the best position any founder can hope for. It's very fortunate. We're very blessed. We work very hard to keep our reputation um intact. You know, we're and then the other side of the business, of course, is the consulting side, right? And so You'll notice if you notice on our website, we talk about multiple pieces of technology. So, you know, the other system that we have um, is I sort of call it the anti-RFP. So those large companies, when you're able to deliver for them, then they come back and they want they want help in other things. Right. So maybe they're starting a new company. Nationwide Insurance, for example, was starting their pet insurance division when we worked with them um, and it's now rolled into the company, but originally it was a smaller company. And so they needed to be set up from the get-go. It was like a brand new startup. And so they needed everything. And, you know, that consulting means we we want to get them hooked up with the right um, technology provider. We want to get them hooked up with the right bank. We want to get them hooked up with the right fraud screening company, the right chargeback, you know, um, services. And so it's important that, you know, our partners, we have over 125 partner companies in the industry and our clients, um, that they all know that we are trustworthy, that we're honest, that we're not pushing a client, you know, to a partner because we're going to get something out of it. And so it's, it's really something that we work at to maintain our integrity. So, so let's jump into how the payments platforms have changed over the past, say, decade or two. 
<clears throat> when you when you talk about you know something that that seems simple like a subscription not expiring that's that's a significant change in the way that we as consumers can make payments and can purchase things over time um, so that one thing that you were a part of has such ripple effect in so many things that we kind of you know don't even think about now with Netflix subscriptions and Disney subscriptions and Apple subscriptions and all of these pieces but the players behind the scenes that you've been working with and sort of the nature of payments has changed significantly. Like recently we saw, you know, one of the large networks, uh, Visa, acquire Plaid. Plaid, of course, you know, aggregates data from a lot of different sources, but it's primarily behind the scenes working directly with banks. And it just kind of shows that payments and consumer data and purchase data is really sort of what's at the bottom of all of the potential revenue here in the future. Uh, what's, what's been changing? I mean, are we gonna see more M&A in the space? And, and, and where do you see the industry going in terms of the use of consumer data? So that's a really interesting question. I think um, when you're talking about the payment network, uh, the, the associations, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, um, Visa and MasterCard in particular own the rails, right, that all of, all of the credit card payments run on. They're facing challenges because of the dawn of the new, new payment methods, right? And so uh, the way people can pay has changed so much, so dramatically in the last five years. Um, you know, I, I, I often say you'll see on my tweets a lot, customers crave convenience, right? And so... Um, Visa knows this and they have to sort of hedge their bet, you know, are people going to continue to use credit cards or are they going to start to like, you know, p paying people with Venmo and other WeChat pay and uh, Alipay. And so I think Visa is branching out to get further tentacles further into other businesses. I'm, I'm, really surprised there isn't more talk about that plaid acquisition because you know banks have relationships with either visa or mastercard right i mean you probably don't think about it much but you have a citibank mastercard but you have a chase visa right you have a capital one mastercard um and so when visa acquired plaid it gave it tentacles into a lot of issuing banks it may not otherwise have had relationships with. And that's pretty huge. So I agree with you that there's a big consumer data play here, but I'm not so sure that's why Visa wanted it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But at the same time, you know, you have to wonder, is Visa worried about the future of cards? Is it worried about, you know, being relevant if it doesn't go into a different type of, of data set and a different way to sort of reach consumers? I think at the end of the day, what I'm concerned about is that, you know, with the influx of so many ways to pay, that mm -hmm. we are just sort of moving into in payments and in banking and advertising model that really wasn't part of the mix that consumers signed up for uh, just a few mm -hmm. years ago. So that's, that's my biggest concern with something about the plan acquisition is that 
It's simply going to be another way that they could get insight into what we want to buy. And really, payments and banks should be about saving and protecting and growing money, not um, making money on top of our preferences, if that makes sense. Yep. I agree with you. And so to answer your original question, I mean, that that consumer data is valuable for all the reasons that you're concerned about. And it's being bought and sold, you know, constantly, and it will continue to be. And I'm sure it's a huge source of revenue for Visa. Visa's customers, if you think about it this way, Visa's customers are the issuing banks. That's who Visa has the relationships with. So the, 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 even though they would, you wouldn't know by the television commercials you watch, Visa's relationship to the actual consumer is pretty removed. Your relationship is with the bank that is on your card. And then that bank has a relationship with Visa. You don't really think of it that way because you think of it, oh, I'm going to put this on my Visa. But really, it's the relationship with the bank that is governing everything between the consumer and Visa. And so I think that the data that's really important to Visa is those 10,000 banks that Plaid is connected into, 50,000 banks, however many thousands of banks. But I think that you're right. I think that they're still, they also, of course, have all that consumer data at their fingertips that of co- I'm sure they'll be using and monetizing. I don't think Visa is concerned about the future of cards. And we could do two hours on Visa. <laughs> it's an interesting culture and company, uh, but they are pretty, um, Visa's view of the world is pretty Visa-centric. I'll leave it, I'll let, I'll let it, let it stay there. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I don't know. I want to do two hours on cash and, and where cash payments are going. I just saw an article yesterday that said cash is never going to go away. And so, you know, it's regardless of how we pay. Away. I there don't are think. Asians that love cash. Come on. Seriously. <laughs> I, I mean, we joke about it all the time. And, you know, we always talk about, oh, you know, how you look at China and how so many people are adopting digital payments. But it is true um, in, in a lot of ways, but I think it's because of how the environment governs it is because um, how the ecosystem and infrastructure is set up or not set up. But then if you look outside of that, right, look at New York, for example, wasn't it just uh, recently that they say you have to accept cash? Um, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people that likes to cash and is anonymous, right? That, that goes back to why cash just does not die is because it's anonymous. Um, I agree. Yes, Brad, we should do a follow-on episode of Cash. We should do that. I love Cash. I mean, we just passed Chinese <laughs> New Year, and guess what? I give to the kids Cash. It's perfect. They love yeah. it. They look at the money. Yeah. They can feel it. They know exactly what it's like. Um, and, and I think you know, it, it goes back to some of the conversations we had before: is from teaching kids responsibility with money when they see ten dollars, when they see twenty dollars in their wallet and they go buy something, they can 
sense what it is that they can do, what they cannot do, and they feel the pain of pulling the bill out from the wallet. Whereas I, I saw them, and, and we talked about this in, a, in another episode, when I saw them um, paying for things in, in Hong Kong with an NFC watch, they just go everywhere and they beep the watch and they're happy and walked out from the store without thinking Absolutely. about yeah. what they've spent. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, it, but it that's what me. the merchant wants, right? Yeah, that's what the merchants want. Yes. And that's why brands are moving further and further away from cash because they want it to be, you know, seamless is too, is, is even not an even strong enough a word. They want it to be mindless. They want it to be thoughtless. Mindless. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's keep mm-hmm. spending. And then we'll worry about paying the debt later. Oh, we have record consumer debt. Oh, don't worry. Buy now and pay later. Sorry. Yeah. I'll get up my soapbox. Yeah. but let's talk about another trend that's really really interesting and i am seeing that you are getting more involved in is is voice now the premise of voice a lot of us have an alexa or google or siri at home and but a lot of the activities is still you know hey alexa good morning and they turn on the lights or hey siri what time is it or set the kitchen timer i do that every single day um And you were recently at Project Voice talking about conversational commerce, which takes us one step further, not just, you know, asking the time or or information, but actually paying with your voice. Where do you think we are, though, in terms of technology and consumer readiness? Is the tech ready? I mean, you know, I I love all those three little things in, in my house, but it can't understand me all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's. So I didn't own a voice assistant until I started to become involved in the voice community. And then sort of out of necessity, I needed to know what I was going to be talking about. So we, we, we spoke at the voice of money in October and that's when we sort of got our first voice assistant. And, and it's only been a few months and I can't imagine without my life without it already. So that scares me. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I never wanted one. I didn't want Amazon listening to everything happening in my house. And now I'm like, Alexa, what's the temperature? Alexa, what time is it? Alexa, set an alarm. It's crazy. Um, and that's what the voice community knows. And the, the atmosphere in Pro- at Project Voice was such a contagious um, I can't even describe it other than to say it's sort of like a gold rush. It's so early in that space and there's so much possibility and there's so much opportunity and there are so many ideas just going back and forth that, you know, they don't, they, they can't even contain how excited they are. Um, developers, companies, um, when it comes to commerce in that space, I learned a lot at Project Voice about where commerce is. And the and it's all it's equally as scary as I thought. Um the the major platforms right now um for the assistance are Amazon, Google, and Samsung, right? And Samsung is far behind. Bixby is um relatively new in the space and they're they're gonna be ramping up this year, but it's really Amazon and Google. And when you look at those two, drill it down even further, Amazon. And why is that? It's because we shop already with Amazon. And so, you know, we're, that's, it's so easy to say, um, and there are more and more voice assistants are coming with screens, right? 
So it's so easy to say, Amazon, uh, hey, Alexa, I need a pair of shoes. And she says, oh, well, do you want, you know, the shoes you bought last month? That'd be great. Size 10? Sure. Okay, they're on their way. And the transaction is done. Oh, you want to hear something funny when you talk about shopping with voice? Um, over the holidays, we had friends over um, for, for Christmas Eve dinner. And unbeknownst to me the next day, I found a carton of ice cream waiting to be checked out on Amazon Fresh. As it turns oh. out, the kids were looking for ice cream. Um, so <laughs> let's just say <laughs> I, we, we, we turned it off really quick. Like, oh my goodness, if, if they wanted to get ice cream, what's next, right? My, my right. son is really into like model planes and stuff. What if he uh, orders some crazy, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, sophisticated models um, on, on I know. commerce? <laughs> so the biometrics are becoming more and more sophisticated and, and, and they can differentiate between voices within the same family now. Um, in terms of the actual payment itself, Right now, you whatever card you have on file at Amazon is the file is the card that will be automatically charged, and so there is no real function for a, for payments outside of Amazon, and that sort of is what's frightening to me because it would be the same via Google, it would be the same via Samsung, Samsung Pay, Google Pay, Apple Pay are the primary payment vehicles. And those were designed to be payment methods, right? They were designed to be a way for you to pay, but they were not designed to be the only way to pay. And the more you, and so Amazon is specifically, and Google too, and, and all three of them, they're, they're, they're ravenous for content, right? They'll, they'll let you put, they make it so easy to make a skill and so easy to link your app and so easy. Why? Because they want you to pay through that speaker because that payment goes through Amazon pay. It goes through their rails. They're charging you the fees. They're charging the merchant the fees. They're getting a piece of that payment. So go along those lines a little bit more though, because I think that the biggest change in what we're talking about here is that commerce and payments were once sort of separated where the payment mm-hmm. flow and the revenue associated with the payment would go to the company that was facilitating the payment. But now we're seeing the combination of both commerce and payment within the same entity. And you're seeing this in, you know, it, it's exploded over the last five or six years in the East and China and other geographies with Alipay and Tencent Pay and Grab and Bcash and Gojek and all these others into these super apps where you not only have the method of payment, but you have the ability to find and pay for services and for goods and for almost anything right. that you would possibly want. You know, is the, 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 the slower movement in the West and especially in Europe and in other geographies outside of Asia to go to this sort of super app model where commerce and payments are combined, is it mm. a matter of time before we're going to see this in the U.S. and in Europe and in other geographies? What do you think? It is. I think it absolutely is. And, um, you know, those, that's the space where payometry really works, right? Um, and the reason that we, that we work there sort of goes back to what we were discussing at the beginning 
is because there isn't opportunity in the commoditized offerings for payments. A payments company doesn't have the ability, just simply the ability technology-wise, to personalize payments for brands, for companies. And so that's why, I mean, this is hyperbole, but that's why Netflix and Blue Apron get the same payments from a payments company, because as a commodity, they can only offer one thing. Um, and so what did they, what did payments, what did Netflix do? They built their own payments engine and they bring experts in to, you know, help to personalize and optimize and so on and so forth. Now, in a few years, Netflix starts to realize, well, wait a second, I'm accepting the payment, I'm processing the payment, but I'm still paying somebody else to do the fraud. I'm still paying somebody else to do the chargebacks. I'm still paying somebody else to settle the payment. Maybe I could take more of that on myself and because the fees are high. And so as that capability becomes more available, I do think we're going to see more companies do it. Now, that's different than what you're talking about to an extent. You know, the super app, I could do, I love super, I love the idea of the super apps. I love them. I think it's so cool. <laughs> but, um, you know, like the Uber, I think Uber is the first, you know, company that we're really familiar with in the U.S. that's trying to do the grab model um, of super app. And, you know, it all goes back to that convenience again. It all goes back to being in one place at the right time. And before you know it, you have a big box of Legos on your front porch and you don't need to know anything about it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, you know, conversational commerce, I think we're still really early in that um, paradigm. I think um, the majority of what's being bought and sold is being bought and sold through those major platforms right now. Some companies, like, for example, Mercedes, are building their own voice assistants. So, and then you have the other ones that are working with the big companies, right? So I plug my phone into my car when I get in. And if I were going to be purchasing with voice through my car, I would be going through Apple CarPlay. Um, Alexa just announced a partnership a few days ago with Exxon that you would be able to pull up to the pump and say, okay, I'd like to get gas on pump four, please. And so that would be Exxon billing your Amazon card. And so that's Amazon coming into the car now. But Mercedes is trying to avoid that by building their own voice assistant. As an aside, they also own their own payments company, which they did a couple of years ago. So they're pretty tech forward anyway. But I think that that uh, in voice anyway, I think that's, pretty far away. I think it's going to be very focused on the platforms that run the voice assistance for a while. You know what I'd like to see in the future as a consumer is somehow more of these capabilities being supported cross-platform. Um, there is starting to be like that. And I know in, in IoT, they're talking about creating a standard, but um, that was the joke in, in the house because we have all three. And um, I mm-hmm. remember one day music was playing in the house and we were trying to, to quiet it down and, and talk about habits, right? And, and habits formed really easily. My kids were trying to tell one of the voice assistants to, to lower the volume. 
as it turns out, it was another box, right? And so we had to keep right. trying, like, okay, wait, which one is it that's playing? Um, one of these days, we just say, hey, lower the volume and, and they'll figure it out. I think that'll, that'll be better because I think fragmented ecosystem uh, and standard is never good for consumers, right? Look at what happened with uh, tape recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so before we close, I'm curious to know, is January, well, almost end of, um, what's next for um, Payometry? What do you guys have planned for this year? What gets you excited this year? Um, if there is something that you can share with us without having to kill us later? <laughs> yeah, um, actually we can. So we, we've been working for a while now um, on our own platform and, it's taken a lot of different turns. It's, it's sort of the interesting quintessential founder's journey um, that as the needs of the community have changed, our product has changed. Um, and it's been a really exciting journey. Um, we've gone from, you know, a couple of years ago thinking we were going to be taking investment and building one thing to now staying completely self-funded and building something different. And it's pr probably the best job I've ever had. It's just very fun. And so right now we're focusing on our optimization platform, which is really designed to sit next to any payments engine and um, sort of adapted to have that capability that I was talking about a few minutes ago to be able to personalize. And so if, uh, it could work for a payments processor that has 50,000 merchants, but isn't able to differentiate between them. If they use the payometry platform, we will be able to help them to do that so that they can provide personalized payments processing for all of their merchants. Or it could work for a large company um, who that just wants more personalized and optimized service and they process in-house. So you could bring it to Netflix and let Netflix use it for themselves. And so that's where we're headed. Um, I think the future of card on file is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? We're going to be at self-checkout and more NFC payments with the watch and more voice payments where that card that's in the background on file is going to be charged and customers are going to expect to just walk out of the store or they want their pizza to show up on the front doorstep and the driver behind all of those models is that the card on file has to approve and at the end of the day what payometry is very good at is getting those cards to go through that's our secret sauce is helping a merchant with card declines because when the card declines, the customer experience grinds to a halt. And so um, that's what we're really trying to do is bring that convenience piece for merchants um, and help other processors to bring it for their merchants. So that's where we're headed. That's awesome. And there you have it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. And thank you for listening in to a new episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next time. Thanks so much.